Rockaway Naval Air Station, New York, December 13th, 1920. A spontaneous training exercise turned national front page news, but now a century later, few have heard this remarkable real-life story. One of courage and grit, an adventurer whose events would lead one of its survivors onto even greater accomplishments. They expected to be home within a day. U.S. Navy Lieutenants Louis A. Clore Jr., Stephen A. Farrell, and Walter Hinton set out in the U.S. Navy balloon A-5598 at about 1 p.m. December 13th, never anticipating that their journey wouldn't even bring them back home to their families by Christmas. Lieutenant Clore, with the most flight experience, was mission commander. Farrell, acting pilot, though senior officer to the others, and Hinton served as ground observer and initiator of the expedition. Having acquired permission from his commander and executive officer, Hinton invited Farrell along just the day before their flight. With a capacity of 35,000 cubic feet, the crew equipped balloon A5598 with 21 30-pound sandbags for ballast, four pigeons for sending messages, and four seats in the basket along with heavy ropes for anchoring. They had a compass, an altimeter, and a statoscope, an important instrument that measures the rate of rise or drop of the hot air balloon. One of the men also brought along a penknife, two packs of cigarettes, and one box of matches. The Navy lieutenants were dressed warmly in heavy flight suits and boots. Clore and Hinton also wore their uniforms and long underwear underneath. Farrell, a more burly build, wore only his flight suit over his warm undergarments, but brought along his uniform and an extra pair of shoes in his kit bag. For food, they packed eight sandwiches and two thermoses of hot coffee. Proving further the spontaneity of the flight, they packed no water, no logbook, and no maps or charts besides a railroad map of the Quebec Central Railway. Following a clear afternoon takeoff, Hinton mentioned to his comrades that he hadn't switched out the fuel for their flight. The gas in the balloon was actually 10 days old, stale, and impure. The trio didn't think much of it, and they kept on. As they floated over the Brooklyn Navy Yards, they sent off a pigeon to report that all was well. This was as close to text messaging as it could get while airborne in 1920. Expecting to land in Upper New York State, they made for their first stop. They found a tree near a small farmhouse and tied the Navy balloon off. Not knowing exactly where they were, they asked a man passing by, who confirmed that they had indeed arrived in Wells, New York. After a short break, they finished their sandwiches, cast loose, and went up again. It began to rain from that moment on, but the trio's enthusiasm was left untainted by the weather and their sense of adventure only drove them to make the journey longer. They wouldn't be up long, they thought, just a little while longer, but the more time they spent in the air, the more the weather continued to grow worse. It was impossible to land. The safest and only choice was to keep going up. They dropped their 21st bag, the last of the ballast to rise above the weather. No doubt, the adrenaline was well in gear by this point, as the task before them now 
was to clear the Adirondack Mountains through the gusting wind and cold rain. By 11 p.m., the men saw the city lights of Ottawa, but at the time, they could only wildly guess as to where they were. The wind was north by west, and it blew hard. The temperature dropped below freezing, and thick fog blinded them of sight both above and below the balloon. They needed to get higher. Captain Clore ordered them to get light. With all the ballast gone, they were forced to toss over the seats, heavy drag rope, carpet, basket liner, instruments, and thermos bottles. At daybreak on day two, the rain eventually calmed down, leaving the balloon drifting through Apache fog. There was no sign of civilization. All that was in view was dense snow covered forest, and the realization set in that this already unexpected journey had a lot more in store. Hey, you need to check out our friends at Darn Tough Vermont. Everyone wants socks. It is the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. Tired of slipping, smell, blisters, binding, and holes? You get none of that with Darn Tough Vermont socks. They are made with the softest, itchless merino wool, which are unconditionally guaranteed for life. For real. I use them, and so does the whole team that creates this podcast. And let me tell you, these are built to last. Family-owned and made in the USA, Darn Tough has something for everyone. Hiking, skiing, work, running, hunting, and plain everyday use. Anyone on their feet all day will love Darn Tough Vermont socks. Head to darntough.com slash in the wild to check them out. Buy two pairs and shipping is free for our listeners. That's D-A-R-N-T-O-U-G-H dot com slash in the wild. The sun began to burn off the fog. On average, hot air balloons typically fly at an altitude of one to 3,000 feet. But as the sun warmed the gas in the balloon, the heat increased the buoyancy and balloon A5598 rose to nearly 6,500 feet. There was nothing else the aeronauts could do. They were at the mercy of Mother Nature to determine the rest of their journey. By that afternoon, the balloon descended to about 1,000 feet. They spotted what they thought was a small shack through a clearing in the clouds accompanied by the distant sound of a dog howling. Opening the valve to descend down, the crew battled against the tree line as best they could. Their dodging attempts, though valiant, saved them from being completely smashed to the ground. But the trees still won. The balloon snagged, sending the basket and everything it contained thrashing to the ground. Before the descent, they brought the pigeon cage inside the basket with them to protect the birds. Little did they know the value of these pigeons that would add to their lives beyond their text messaging duty. The crew survived the extreme landing, along with the three lucky pigeons. All three of the men were in their flying clothes, soaking wet. Clore carried the pigeon cage. Farrell grabbed his kit bag and Hinton, feeling responsible for their survival, set them off southeast in hopes to reach the shack and howling dog they had spotted before their descent. The trio started through the forest and went on for four miles in the piled snow. 
At dark, they stopped, made a fire, and Clore and Farrell broke out the cigarettes while they rested. Later, they gathered pine brush to lie on to protect them from the cold snow-covered ground. They didn't eat that day. The next morning, on December 15th, the trio woke with high hopes that day three would be their lucky day. They cleaned a pigeon and cooked it. Now tragically divided in three equal parts, the valiant pigeon provided just a couple mouthfuls to appease their hunger. Hinton went off to scout the area in search of a stream. Having taken off his heavy flying suit, he lost where he had laid it down and couldn't find it on his way back. Continuing in the journey together, they came to a creek and followed the bank since it was not frozen over. Along the way, they ate nothing but caribou moss and drank questionable water out of moose tracks and holes in the ground that left them all feeling nauseated. At this point, Farrell was having the hardest time keeping up, so Hinton suggested he ditch the flying suit that was slowing him down. Farrell passed it off to Hinton to wear, who was still in just his long johns after losing his suit. But not long after still dredging, Farrell tripped over a large tree trunk, throwing him into a hole three feet deep. He managed to get out on his own, but it left him sore and bruised. Around noon, they stopped to light a fire and rest. They didn't eat. Morale continued to decline as the three men grew weak and nauseated. All three of them had encountered their fair share of tripping over trees and holes. After all this time, they were perplexed as to why it was taking them so long to reach the howling dog shack. Following the compass, they were certain they were not going in circles, but the view was constantly the same, making it seem as if they were in fact going nowhere. At nightfall, they set up camp again. If it took more than one match to get the fire lit, the men grew tense. Like the first night, Hinton slept near the fire, Farrell on the outside, and Clore, the only one who could really sleep, laid near the other side of the fire and added on any extra clothing they had with them. Exhausted and cold, the men snuggled as close to the fire as they possibly could, but their proximity forced Farrell, who could never sleep, to play fire rescue constantly having to pull Clore and Hinton's feet out from the fire amidst their restless sleep. Their flying shoes were now completely burnt and useless, and they were forced to switch to their heavy boots the next day. When the sun rose on the fourth day, they cooked up the third pigeon and killed the fourth. Clore carried the dead one in his pocket to free them of having to carry the cage, and Farrell decided to ditch his kit bag after switching out his shoes. With bodies weak and minds gruesomely burdened, they lightened up by unloading, just like they knew how to lift a hot air balloon. Farrell still had a drop of humor left in him and gave Clore a hard time for hogging the fire that night. Continuing on, the trio came to a creek that led them to a river. At the river, they noticed sled tracks. They followed the sled tracks and after nearly five miles, the first human they had seen in days appeared. A man named Tom Marks, a Cree trapper, had also noticed their tracks. Weather conditions and strange circumstances considered, 
Marx let his curiosity lead him to finding the three stranded Navy lieutenants. The men were in horrible shape. Their frostbitten faces, fingers, and toes were nature's gentle warning to keep them moving, and the mental toll of the entirely unexpected experience had almost drained their hopes dry. Tom Marks became an unexpected hero that day and led them a few miles away to his cabin, providing tea, food, and a place for the depleted men to rest. Later, the aeronauts learned that they had traveled 800 miles from Rockaway, and the shack they thought they had seen that bore the target of their descent was merely a stack of hay. The howling dog was a husky caught in a beaver trap soon freed by a local trapper. The tiresome journey had brought them to Moose Factory, a small village on the Canadian Arctic. The small village was in the middle of nowhere. No roads, no wireless radio, and no railroad access within a 10-day voyage. Mail was delivered in and out via dog sled routes to Mattis or Cochrane. As the other men rested, Lieutenant Clore sent a report to his superior officers in Rockaway to be sent by wire. Tom Mark's son, along with a few others, set out on December 23rd on the mail run to bring news that the lost aeronauts were in fact safe and recovering. After three weeks of their families contemplating the worst, Christmas brought their fears to rest with the best news. Due to their isolated location, it would still be over a week before they could be reunited with their loved ones. They spent Christmas in Moose Factory. Their story was printed as early as January 3, 1921, and trickled across front-page news around the United States and Canada. On December 28th, they set out on the journey in dog sleds to Mattis, accompanied by locals for safety. Enduring blizzards, storms, and temperatures well below zero, they arrived at Mattis on January 11th, swarmed by reporters. A reception was held in their honor on January 13th back in Rockaway, and the three Navy lieutenants were happily reunited with their families an entire month after their initial departure. The infamous Navy balloon A5598 wasn't found for another 16 years. In March of 1937, it was found just as the three aeronauts left it. Balloon silk caught on the trees and baskets smashed to the ground. The unanticipated and wearisome journey left Lieutenant Farrell in the worst condition. He was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, or shell shock as it was termed back then, and put on leave which prompted early retirement. The kid, as Louis A. Clore Jr. was nicknamed, was dismissed from the United States Navy in November of 1921 for not passing his required exams previously that year in May. It was Walter Hinton that continued to carve his name in history. Only a year before the trio's epic adventure, Hinton was part of the crew on the very first recorded transatlantic flight in May 1919 on the NC-4, a Curtis flying boat crafted for the war. It was a historical flight that was abruptly overshadowed by the success of the first non-stop transatlantic flight accomplished only a week later by the Royal Air Force. No doubt 
His previous adventures helped supply the fortitude to endure this particular one. Later, Walter Hinton became the first civilian aviator to fly from New York to Brazil in 1922, and also the first to explore the Amazon rainforest by air in 1923. His name and image now decorate street signs, cigarettes, and statues throughout South America.